All right, welcome everyone to the next edition of Your Amigos podcast. Uh, this is a special sort of podcast. We're with uh, Gretchen Vaughn, who's CEO of the Kidney Cancer Association, or commonly known as KCA. And we're on the, uh, the precipice of the annual IKCS meeting. We're going to talk to Gretchen a little is bit precipice about... precipice the right word, Brian? Yes, it's the exact <laughs> right word, Tom. Please stop interrupting me. We're on the precipice of the IKCS meeting. We're going to talk a little bit about that meeting and some of the KCA initiatives. And then Tom and I have access to the abstract, and so he and I are going to discuss briefly... Uh, just a couple of the highlights. So first of all, Gretchen, welcome. If you if you want to introduce yourself, and then I will ask you a little bit about uh, KCA. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. This is a rare and unique opportunity, Not le- much less me speaking live, but uh, being up this early to do it. <laughs> so, um, I'm Gretchen Vaughn, the president and CEO of the Kidney Cancer Association for almost exactly two years now. Uh, seems a little bit like 20 in these day and age in this COVID situation, but um, it's been amazing. And before then, I worked at MD Anderson Cancer Center for 13 years uh, with my fierce leader, Christopher Wood, and then a long toward uh, career in financial services before that. So thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Um, So KCA has been around, so this is the 30th anniversary, as I understand it. I know it was founded back in 1990, Nick Vogelzang, who was one of my primary mentors at University of Chicago with, with Gene Schoenfeld. So it certainly has a long track record in kidney cancer. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what's going on most recently. I know there's a new grant program, a reinvigorated grant program. Tell us about that and, and any other uh, KCA initiatives. Sure. So we have kind of just, uh, the grant program has actually been around since 1995, but we have a new um, invigoration. We've injected some life back into it, really ramped it up, added a few additional uh, grant opportunities to currently there are six at 1.3 million. So the YIAs that have, uh, people have historically known have been around a $50,000 mark, uh, anywhere between 50 and 100. We raised them up to 75. There's four of those. And then we added two um, advanced grants, advanced researcher grants for more collaborative um, and um, uh, situations around 500,000. And we hope to add one more in the psychosocial area this coming year as soon as we get board approval coming up in about a week, uh, because it seems to be a a missed opportunity in a lot of ways. So Mm -hmm. we're excited about that. And I think... were these just awarded? Wasn't there a cycle that was just awarded? Yes, we just gonna... finished our uh, cycle, and we the next round won't be we won't be taking applications again until March. So until March. Mm-hmm. And do we know who was successful? Is that we allowed? Are we allowed to know that? Uh, Not who, but which projects rather rather than names rather. Do we know which projects you funded? Oh well, that's I think that's going to be posted. So I'm not sure if I'm supposed to read it. Okay. <laughs> soon, no, I think it'll be public soon. But yeah, I think that's <laughs> will it be public at the meeting? Will it be public at the meeting? Yeah, oh, for sure. Yes. Okay, so we'll know in a couple of weeks' time. Yes. Great. Exactly. So let's let's transition towards the meeting. So IKCS, which has also been around since the '90s, I went to my first meeting as a fellow in 1999. Gretchen, yeah. do you know the year of the first meeting? That's Is that right? Year. That was the first great one. Year. Yeah. So, and it actually initially, yeah, thank you. Initially it was every other year because I remember the discussion being that there wasn't that much to talk about, you know, every year. And then I'm not sure what year it went to annually. Gretchen, I don't know if you know that, but it was 
there was a few of the every other year and then it's been annual ever since. I think it was every um, other year just for the first couple. And then it ended up okay. being every year pretty early on, still in the 90s. And then eventually uh, they dropped it. it uh, Kidney Cancer Association originally was the National Kidney Cancer Association. And it was very uh, quickly that they determined this is really a, a global situation, international situation. So they dropped the national name. And then they also added the uh, European International Kidney Cancer Symposium after that. So, Right. I didn't realize about the national name. I never knew that. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, right, European IKCS, the European version of the meeting, started when that was probably 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago? Yes. And that's also annual. Obviously, it was canceled this year because of uh, COVID, but it's, it's now annually also. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And IKCS, which is usually around November, uh, used to be in Chicago and has moved since then. Um, I guess, you know, for the audience that doesn't know, I think most people know about the meeting, but tell us a little bit about that, especially this year. And I think some of the, the obvious challenges from changing to a live to a virtual meeting. Well, I'm sure all of us have felt some of those challenges this year. Uh, basically, the meetings are to continue. There were, it was really one of the very first meetings to bring everybody kind of to the table to share ideas and, and educate and, uh, and really camaraderie and, and get to know each other. Back then, as well as as much as now, we're still fostering new ideas, new talent, uh, new discoveries. It's still a huge part of our mission through the IKCS and EIKCS, as well as the grant program. And now we're excited even about our mentorship program with you uh, as part of these um, meetings. But I mean, it was extremely, the, one of the hardest decisions right off the bat, not even being here that long, was to have to cancel EIKCS um, after so much effort and work went into it this spring, obviously. And so everybody went into, like, how, how do we make this happen virtually? Um, as being one of the organizations that, you know, is one of the last of the year to, to do this, we felt like we really needed to step this up. We have a new events planning uh, organization, MJH, that I know both of you are familiar with. And they've been amazing to help us pivot and and find ways to make this more engaging um, online. You know, it's almost an oxymoron, but um, a way for people to, we hope, to still get the information they need, get the science they need, but also have a way to um, interact with each other and uh, hopefully enjoy themselves. We're sending out, you know, treat boxes in advance so that it hopefully feels like one big happy hour, whether it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner, <laughs> while you are participating in the meeting. Tell us, tell us more about the treat boxes. <laughs> I, I, I'm excited by those. I'm excited by the treat boxes. I well, heard depending about on what's uh, in them. what your time zone is, you either you got to choose, uh, you know, whether or not you wanted a wake me up breakfast box or just a regular snack box or a boozy box. <laughs> Can you get a boozy box in the morning? Or is that? <laughs> I just you don't know might. the detail. I, you could. And you got a list if you do box. ask for that. Do you get do you got a list if you ask for the boozy box? <laughs> you in the morning? Get that list. Yeah. <laughs> 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 hand, it, hand it into your local health so, authority. Gretchen, maybe just a few more a few more specifics about the engagement of the meeting. So I know there's sort of some some virtual poster walks and also sort of virtual networking, which I think is, is fairly unique, um, you know, for these virtual meetings. Do you, can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Well, I, actually, I, you could probably tell us a little bit more about that than I can. We had a fabulous planning committee, but these are not details that I always get involved in. Yeah. So, so basically, the the virtual poster walks are going to take you know some faculty, and I think I'm not sure at the technology if it's in the Zoom meeting rooms or something, but to be able to sort of go through posters like you would you know normally do a walk, right, a physical walk with a senior faculty, this, I guess, will be a virtual walkthrough. So Mm -hmm. I think it's just, I think all of us have Zoom fatigue now. And so I think we all and and KCA, you know, of course, has to be creative and sort of making these meetings as engaging as possible. I think that's one of the challenges. Brian, so what what you do, Brian, is I guess is what you do is you kind of put all the posters up and then you sort of kind of have a Zoom slide and then you Zoom, you you flick through slides with different members of the faculty talking about posters. Yep, I think you can sort of sign up for different I love that idea. Right. And just so you can take a deeper dive into posters, you know, as opposed to just having them online. 10 posters and you have an hour to discuss 10 posters and you get four people discussing them. And you can, instead of just showing the normal PowerPoint presentation, each slide has an individual sort of poster on it. And you can say, I thought this was interesting because of A, B, and C. Yep, exactly. And again, I like that idea. I haven't done that before. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I I think especially for junior (laughs) faculty and fellows, which is a big part of the mission, is really trying to engage them and give them the insight you know that you might not get on a in a normal virtual setting so listen brian should we talk about some of these posters so okay which one do you like so a couple caught my attention so one is about this alternative ipi nevo dosing so this was from uh johanna bendel who's actually down the street from me was the first author this was sort of a community-based i saw nevo higher dose nevo ipi at one but but spaced out every eight weeks, basically with the concept of trying to reduce toxicity, but maintain efficacy. 106 patients. 100, yeah, 106 patients. And, you know, sort of uh, frontline clear cell. So similar, similar to a 214 population. Yeah. And basically what they saw, much as I can glean from the abstract, is uh, acceptable toxicity. It looked like toxicity was sort of reduced, as you might expect, with spacing out the IPI, but the efficacy was not as robust as 214. Response rate about thirty five percent, which isn't bad, but median PFS was only PFS five months, four point eight months, right? Response rate thirty four. That doesn't look higher. It looks kind of the same or a bit lower. And actually, the confidence interval is twenty five to forty four point five. So, I, I mean, people always say to me that all the EP does really, because remember, Pembro's got a response rate of thirty nine percent in four two seven. And IP Nevo response rate of 40%. So some people say to me, and I think Mike Atkins' data was pretty compelling as well, where he gave single agent um, Nevo. Nevo. Um, and so many people say, well, what's actually the EP adding from an initial perspective? And do you remember we did that study with the tezolizumab and I realized it's a different drug, but the response rate was lower there, about 27%, 28%. And some of the single agent EP, um, Nevo data is, is lower than the sort of benchmark between 35 and 40%. I think this is an area which we haven't really resolved, to be honest with you. Um, and but I think the PFS here of 4.8 months, they have to look at the data, but it's 100 patients, you know, with PFS of um, uh, 12 of months, kind of 12 months. But then, of course, Cabo Nevo with and, right. and uh, the 15 months, you sort of look at this 4.8 and it does, you know, you... I mean, to your, to your point that you wouldn't expect CTLA changing CTLA4 to impact PFS that much. It might impact durability. But even the- do you know what I do? I do think about this. I look at Cosmic 313 and giving the triplet and you look at it because if, you know, and I realize 214 is a randomized study of a thousand patients. It's much more robust than 50 patients in each arm. We need to be really realistic and thoughtful at that point. But it is kind of, you know, you, you look at Cosmic 313 and so maybe giving the triplet is the best of both worlds. Well, we'll find out. But I think the, for this abstract, I think, you know, at least the, 
conclusions. And I would agree that, you know, the 214 regimen, if you're going to give it B-Nevo, is the standard. And then in practice, obviously, a lot of people modify that based on toxicity, which is totally appropriate. Mm-hmm. But a whole scale adopting a new schedule doesn't seem to be in the cards right now. I was going to talk about the Levacinib dosing story, um, which Mon- Monty Powell's yep. doing. Um, and here we've actually got it's a big study, 311 patients yeah. um, with Levatinib 14 um, or Levatinib 18. And um, the, the story, I think, is around uh, it did not demonstrate non-inferiority, which is a double negative, suggesting <laughs> that the 14, do- 14 dose wasn't was not not worse, which means it's uh uh, and I, I think what they mean by that is that when you look at the hazard ratio, it's um, it, it doesn't uh, for, for 18, it's 0.88 with confidence intervals of 0.59 to 1.32. Non-inferiority studies are really hard to do. Especially at 311 patients, right? It'd be almost yeah, impossible. But, and of course, 14 versus 18, you wouldn't expect the 14 to be more active, would you? Right. So it's going to be 10% less active, maybe. And showing it's 10% less active takes 2,000 patients, yeah. um, which, uh, which makes the trial really difficult to do. One of the problems with, with this approach, I guess, is that we start with a dose and we're bought into it and you can't change it. It kind of takes us back to the previous abstract where, you know, 50 patients in each arm looking at alternative dose. Are we confident that that's, I mean, you said it looked worse. I said it looked worse. Are we confident it's worse? I'm not confident it's worse. Uh, is it better? Doesn't look like yeah. it. I think we probably can say the same about this. We can say 14 may be a little bit worse. Common sense dictates it might be a bit worse than 18. One of the really interesting things, I'm interested in your opinion on this, is the Cabo Nevo data with Cabo 40, lots of dose reductions quickly down to 20. How important is you think dosing is when you combine with, with, with immune therapy? Yeah, I mean, that's the question. So I'm a, I'm a believer that TKI dosing is important, that if the lower dose you go, you will underdose some patients. But I think that's probably more from an angiogenic effect, not an immunomodulatory effect. And I think, as you say, the Cabo-Nivo, even though it was starting at a lower dose and more than half went to 20, which is, seems like almost a homeopathic dose that it, you know, it still produced efficacy you know, as it did, you know, clearly significant. So it seems, what do you think? It seems, let me finish, seems to be less important for immunomodulatory properties. So in combination with IO, but maybe more so as single agent. There's a study, um, it's called the CLEAR trial. It's um, with levatinib plus everolimus, levatinib pembrolizumab versus sunitinib. It's the last of the, you know, aircraft carrier randomized phase three big ticket frontline trials to read out. Um, What's your take on that study? Uh, in the knowledge that we're seeing this sort of activity with um, le- with levatilib, which looks like a good drug. I remember speaking to Bob Motzer saying he really likes it. Um, obviously, we don't know much about it. There's been a randomized phase two in the second line setting, which is pretty small. I know it has EMA and FDA approval. I don't know that many people that use it as standard of care. What's your take on this important trial? Uh, and clear? Yep. Well, yeah, as you say, it's the last one sort of to land. I'm expecting, you know, that the clinical data will be robust if the prior IO, you know, prior PD-1 TKI trials are any uh, any indication, which I think they are. Is that trial using 14 or 18 of Lundvatinib? 18. 18. Yeah. So, you know, they'll, presumably there'll be dose reductions, et cetera, but I assume that the efficacy will be maintained. Uh, what was interesting in the KCA abstract we're talking about is that the the treatment emergent adverse event rate was actually similar. So it was about 80%, you know, plus or minus for both doses. So I assume the idea of this study was to show that it, a lower dose was more tolerable and just as efficacious, but, but I think it showed neither. 
Um, well, we'll have to look at. We'll have to speak to uh, to Monty um, about more detail to see what's going on there. I think that's interesting. Have you got a third? You got a third. There was one about, about spatial. Um, yeah, Zhao, Doctor Zhao, integrated study of spatial dynamics, tracer and X. genomic alterations, right from Tracer X, and they had yeah. about eighty tumors, and they looked at different genomic alterations based on location of the tumor, whether it was more interior. Uh, at the margin or more in the interior of the tumor and showed differences in the genomic alterations based on, based on spatial location within a tumor, um, which I thought was really a fascinating effort. I've never seen data that has shown that before. Well, do we understand what we're doing here, Brian, in terms of... <laughs> Probably <remember> not. <laughs> <laughs> Seems the unlikely. The day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so listen, we go back to that original um, Gerlinger paper on tumor heterogeneity, and this Tracer X group has been continuing to pursue this, and has shown different components. and some, And Samra's done some lovely work yep. um, looking at different clonality of tumors. And actually, you can define tumors; it appears into different groups. And they're these um, phylogenetic trees, which people talk about. Do we have we? When I say, do we understand what we're doing here? Are we applying it into the clinic? Um, or are we trying to apply this work actively into the clinic and do we know what it means? Um, I think it's really sort of defining the biology of kidney cancer. As you know, we're not, yeah. we're not using this in the clinic yet. Even with all the great gene expression work, it's not quite taken the step to be clinically applicable yet. But I think understanding this biology, you know, that there's there are differences and the metastasizing yeah. clones might be here and non-metastasizing ones might be there. If we were thinking about applying local therapy, say, to to primary tumors, it might have implications. So to answer your question, no, we're not there yet, but I think it's still critically important work. Brian, there was a last one you wanted to talk about, which is um, the story around um, the T1B to T2B tumors in the COVID era. I guess it's hard to go through a meeting without talking about COVID at the moment. Right. Um, this was 30,000 patients underwent partial nephrectomy and delaying surgery for even three months did not confer to, to upstaging to T3. Um, among the, the two groups, right, uh, and so it suggests that delaying so the conclusion is delaying surgery up to three up to and even beyond three months does not significantly increase risk of tumor progression in RCC. Um, what do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I think it's important work. I mean, to provide, if you will, some reassurance to docs and patients. These were T1B or T2B patients who who had to get delayed, and they looked at rate of T3A or sta- upstaging to pathologic T3A. And as you say, didn't find risk, even they say beyond three months. I'm not sure how many patients they had that were farther out than that, but I imagine there were some. But am I right in saying in the U.S. right now, you're not delaying surgery by three months anyway? I think that's correct. Yeah, I think our so I think our times, I mean, I can speak for, you know, Middle Tennessee and Vanderbilt, but I think our (laughs) times are pretty much as they were pre-COVID for this kind of surgery. So I was in Europe the same as well, and we've created pathways, and I'm sure most of the people listening have created pathways which are protected from the acute um, accident, the emergency departments where COVID is, is, is obviously going to be an ongoing issue for the next six to nine months. So I, mean, I, I guess most healthcare environments have created these diagnostic treatment pathways for cancer patients which protect them from the infection. There's also data to suggest that and the, the, po- the perioperative surgical risk associated with surgery, I think, is an area of huge debate. Some of the original data suggested that the, post, the post-operative recovery rate was associated with high risk. But actually, there have been a series of more recent um, publications, which is always the way, which have actually contradicted that. But they, don't, they end up in really low impact factor journals, 
because the big headline story, it's a risk, ends up in a great journal, and then the thousand patient studies showing it's safe ends up in a, you know. A, um, so it's a great example of that, and because we went through this data with our series, with our with our hospital relatively recently to work out what the surgical risk really was, and it's pretty, it's not clearly defined, but clearly elderly and elderly individuals with comorbidities do less well with COVID than the rest of the population, and so that's that seems to be one of the unifying rules associated with this process and it doesn't seem like doing a partial nephrectomy would necessarily increase that risk significantly so i'm not sure we should be delaying these operations in the future and i think we should be having pathways where those pathways are, are well protected and i think patients should be pursuing that now clearly if things go wrong in the next six to eight weeks in europe which might occur i can't guarantee it won't but unless that was to happen i would expect that kidney cancer patients should get normal treatment in inverted commas and what i mean by normal is clearly the new, the new normal but they should be offered immune checkpoint inhibitor combinations they should be offered standard type treatments they should be offered standard surgery and they should be able to go to their hospital safely and be in a safe environment without having risk of the infection yep. would you agree with that yep. in the us too yeah no I, I totally agree and we're, we're trying to do that including trials etc and there is in the ikcs i think the last session is a, a covid 19 session about treating kidney cancer so the data we just discussed and, and other data of course i think will come to bear so, hey, uh, I think we're going to put a put a wrap on this. So, Gretchen, hey, thanks for joining us. Gretchen, do you want do you want to just um, um maybe summarize your your the, what you hope people will get from the meeting? Oh my goodness! Well, I hope they get a lot of new ideas, <laughs> and I hope they share all of the information they've been working so hard on all year, and a little bit of camaraderie and a lot of fun. Well, I hope that's always that's always been the case when I've been sounds, in your terrific meetings. Sounds like the treat boxes will help in that regard, Tom. I'll make sure you get a good um, one. Thank you very much indeed. Be looking for um, See you some soon. of the, the Rini avatars. We have avatars this meeting too. It's a whole thing. I'm very excited Thanks about for, that. I'm going to see you guys soon. You thank you very much, much indeed. Thanks for joining, Gretchen. Bye-bye. See you. Bye.